This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk, University of Pennsylvania campus on a lovely spring morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Cade. Glad to be here. Glad to be with you guys. Glad to be back. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us, including Adi Weiner, the fourth collaborator here on Wharton Moneyball. Adi's not in this morning, but he often is. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation, and we wish you would. one 844 Wharton. Give us a shout. one 942 7866 producer, boss man, standing by for your phone calls. Great way to reach out to us. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's an outstanding way to reach us if you're listening, and it's not live. We're replayed four or five times, including this afternoon. But you can reach out during the week. We'll answer your questions. We have answered email live during the show. That's a good way to get us as well. Twitter, you can reach us at Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Send us questions, complaints, observations, over-under suggestions. It's a great way to... To get in hold, get hold of us. We follow all of our guests up there as well, so it's a good way to stay in touch with the sports analytics community. We have a fun show this morning. We've got our usual open line segment this first half hour and the last half hour in between. We have guests, very special in-studio guests at 9 a.m., a faculty colleague of ours who's done really interesting research on sports in a number of different domains. This morning he's going to talk with us about his baseball research. Professor Aton Green is going to be live in studio with us at 9 a.m. But before that, we've got an interesting soccer conversation to have at the bottom of the hour. But between now and then, just curious, as usual, Shane, Eric, what's caught your eye in the world of sports lately? Well, we were talking before uh, uh, we even came on the air about this kind of like the counterfactual of what what this ser- what this NBA championship series would look like yeah. if, if, if the end of game one had gone differently. What would you come up with? Oh, I mean, I mean, it's you know, it's, there's a really wide range of hypotheticals, but I, I honestly think we the narr- certainly the narrative that we would be kind of talking about for this entire series would be very different. I think what I think the thing I'm I don't want to say I'm fairly confident about, but I'm pretty confident after Game Four it would have been two games to two. I feel pretty good that if the Cavs had won Game One. They could have found another one. They could have found another one at home. Yeah. And it would have been 2-2. And then, you know, as I'll I'll use what Tyron Lue said in the Celtics series in Game 7, we got the best player. I feel pretty good about it. Yeah. And so I just just have this sense that had they won Game 1, we could have been talking about a seven-game series. No. And then we would have – but I I would have feel comfortable not at least predicting 2-2. I agree it's less probable, but – 2-2 2-2 is still possible, and if we somehow find ourselves a 2-2... Then I like the Cavs. Then, then you know, I mean, that is sort of implies, you know, 
an even, I think, greater chance for the Cavs if they somehow well, more are importantly, able to... of course, they'd have the momentum. Well, that, that's what I was well, kind of... So, that's, 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 that's what I was feeding you there. What, that's what, right. That's I you, right. I am curious what impact you think the way they lost in Game 1 had on Game 2, or even the way the end of regulation went down in Game 1 had well, on overtime. I mean, it's hard not to think... I mean, I'm always short this momentum story, but it's hard not to imagine that how could it not? Well, so I, I agree. They looked a little crushed, certainly, they in looked, overtime. They looked crushed. But I, I actually just want to point out, so I actually, so I rewatched the tape of the last minute of game one, and mm-hmm. I saw, in my view, there were five things that happened, some of which self-inflicted, some of which not as self-inflicted, that cost them the game. Regulation. In regulation. Mm-hmm. In regulation. The first, which people forget, the Cavaliers were up by two. Kevin Durant has the ball with 50 seconds left, drives to the basket. He's stripped cleanly by LeBron James from behind. They called a foul. Now, if you look at from every angle I've seen that play, there was no foul. Yeah. So now the Cavs have the ball up to with 45 to 50 seconds left. Now, of course, Durant, one of the great free throw shooters in NBA history, makes both ties the game. The second, the Cavs are up by two. Steph Curry drives to the basket. Tristan Thompson somehow, someway decides, not only am I going to let the guy just take a layup, but I'm going to foul him on the layup. So the cat, the, the Warriors would have been tied, not up one. Even if you just let Steph Curry score, you don't give him a three-point play. So now the Cavs so by, are by down. By the way, how, how does Tristan Thompson, big Tristan Thompson, let little Steph Curry score a layup and one on the foul? How does yeah. he, how does that even happen? Because what happened is he was not only he wasn't one step slow, he was two steps slow, and then then he felt he would try to make a hero play at the end. Again, it's bad recognition of the situation in the game, which is they're probably going to call a foul on you one way or the other, and he's going to make both free throws, you know that. And you think about the win-loss. You're right. You could make a hero play and maybe they win the game. But if you foul him and he makes the shot, now you're down one. It changes the odds dramatically. So that's the second thing that had to happen. Third, we all have seen this replayed a thousand times, the blocking call on LeBron James. If that call doesn't happen, the Cavs have the ball with 34 seconds left, up by two points. So that's the third thing that happened. The fourth thing, of course, was people want to point on J.R. Smith. But remember, George Hill could have made that free throw. no kidding. And so then they're up one with four and a half seconds left. And, you know, I'm not saying Golden State wouldn't have scored. I'd prefer being up one with four and a half seconds left. And I think any odds would say you'd rather be that team. I'm not saying it's 90 to 10, especially given it's the Warriors. I'd rather be the Cavs up one. And then, of course, the J.R. Smith play. And and you even put down a sixth point. No, no, no. You even put that out a sixth one was the team not recognizing they had a timeout. Yep. So if you want to actually talk about the mismanagement, some combination of the refs, some combination of their own doing, stupid fouls, bad foul calls, not realizing you were tied, not having the timeout. There were so many, in some sense, there, you know, it's the kind of way I think about it. There was a couple of pass, a large number of pass to winning. And one little path right. to losing, and they found that path. Yeah, and Matt Matt's pointing out that on George Hill's missed free throw, there, there, so there's like four seconds. Five there's seconds also a lane left. violation. Yeah, there's a lane violation. Right. The so, NBA admitted after. I don't know if you saw that. The NBA I admitted after the game that Draymond Green was in the lane early, and he should have been awarded another free throw. As a matter of fact, I watched that on replay. Actually, it was so bad, both feet were in the lane. He had taken two steps in the lane. Before George Hill, actually, he took a step in the lane even before so it, he released the ball. In the way you've just summarized the last minute, the refs, for whatever reason, just de facto, the refs were stringent on calling anything against the Cavs and were quite loose 
You know, yeah. almost neglect ball on calling yeah, so it. Yeah, so I'm not going to claim there's some I'm sort not, of. I'm no, not no, either. You weren't either. I'm just de saying. De facto, that's all, the way it went. No, up. I mean every everything that could go wrong for the Cavs in that last including minute, including refereeing did. calls yep. as well, it, it, including refereeing. The only part I was surprised yep. about, first of all, forget I didn't know the rule too that they could actually review the actual call when LeBron James was called for the block. I didn't realize that there had been a change in rule. See, here's the unfortunate. This is actually an interesting thing. Had it been clear LeBron James was outside the circle. They never would have reviewed the play, and therefore there never would have been a review of the play, and therefore there would have been no switching of the call. But because they were unclear that Le they oh, would, wow. they didn't oh, go wow. to the. Let's be clear: no. the ref said it after the game. They did not go to the monitor to check whether it was a block or charge. They went to the monitor to see if his feet were outside the lane. Once they realized his feet were outside the lane, like, oh, while we're watching this video, let's see if we could decide whether this was actually a block or a charge. And that was an NBA rule put Jeez. in two years ago. Interesting, interesting. So everything went went just, against them. And here's a thing. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's the, I mean, that's kind of um, a unique use of replay relative to the other sports. Like in the NFL, if the if if the refs go to view a particular play, they're viewing it for a specific purpose. They're like, oh, well, where, where's two feet in bounds, et cetera, et cetera. If they see something else wrong with the play, do they don't they, call. No, they, 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 they do not. That's not grounds for reversal. It's right? not. But the NBA changed that rule. Let me just to give the refs credit. It's not like the NBA. The refs just made it up. Like, oh, while we're looking at this, let's just decide to look at something no, else no, no, about no, the they, play. They're following, been, they were following the own, their own structure. I just it's, that, it's a unique structure relative to the other sports for replay. Right. I actually believe, by the way, um, it may have been in in the finals. One of the top two or three games I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever seen LeBron James play better than in that game. Mm. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It was. It was the gr maybe the gr I mean, look. Let me say it again. There's nobody else on the Cavs. No one else. I don't know if you guys have seen the stats. There's no one else in the Cavs shooting fifty percent from the field. <laughs> nobody. And so, and by the way, on like they they measure this stat, which we have now because we have distance from players, you know, wide open three pointers. The Cavs are shooting something like thirty two percent. So he's getting guys the ball open behind the line, and they're just not making shots. Yeah. I mean, I think Kevin Love in one of the games may have shot fifty percent, but he's below fifty. I mean, everybody is shooting. Poorly. Well, and just consider the volume here. LeBron has something like 245 field goals in the postseason. Next highest, Kevin Love. 92, Kevin Love. <laughs> Ridiculous. Right. I, I've actually seen that number. And by the way, it's not like any of you think that LeBron James is a ball hog. Matter of fact, he that's not it at no, all. No, I think he's being quite rational and trying to shoot, <laughs> take <laughs> care of things as often as possible himself. No, that's no. That's, you brought up something important, yeah. which is LeBron James has always said he gets more joy. Look, we even saw with the George yeah. Hill play. He could have tried to beat two guys off the dribble. He made the right play, got the ball to George Hill, who got fouled. He'd rather pass the ball than shoot the ball. Yeah. That's been the criticism of LeBron James, if anything, during his career. But I think he's being rational. I think yep. he's looking around saying, who the hell are these guys I got with me? And they're not going to do, you know, not going to do it. You know, these big sports moments often tend to go one of two directions. Either somebody steps up and wins the game, outplays the other side. Yep. Or somebody gives it away. And you just would so much rather it be the former. You well, hate it when these big moments, these big games come down to somebody making a mistake. But didn't you feel, yeah. didn't you feel, in some sense, despite my rooting for the Cavs, I felt good about game two in the following sense. Like you said, Kate, Steph Curry won him the game. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was a point in the fourth quarter, I don't know if you guys remember, because of LeBron's greatness, they had gotten it down to five points. 
Steph Curry comes down, hits a couple of threes, game's over. Yeah. I'm saying they won the game. <laughs> right. The Cavs didn't lose the game. Right. The Warriors won game two because of Steph Curry's right. greatness. This is, I bet I think this is a theme in these big moments in sports. You see it. I mean, look what happened in the Champions League. I mean, look at Champions League over Memorial Day weekend. Liverpool has, the goalie has just the worst game in the history of big soccer. Yeah, yeah, apparently he was actually concussed. During really? the game, yeah, they actually had him before checked for he a concussion. Threw, before he threw the ball into the guy's foot that ended up I into the goal? I don't know if that actually happened. But but they, he was like, I think, it, I think so. Before I think he, I, he was, right. he was, basically it was determined after the game that he actually was concussed. Uh, it happens, but anyway. It, it mean, happens in golf. Yeah. You know, you don't want, I mean, Faldo wins the mm-hmm. Masters by Norman just completely melting down on 16. Or John, John Valdevelt, John Valdevelt Val- in, the, yeah. in the British, in, in the Open a few years ago. You just don't want to see it go that way. And J.R. Smith, and you know, bringing the ball out from under the basket is one of the all-time blunders. You just hate to see a big game go that way. Yeah. Yep, all-time blunder. So tell me, the, the you know, this is stepping out of the current series a little bit, but I'm curious, do we have any more insight into where James is going to go after this season? So it's now, there's, I mean, obviously, let me just say the, the odds, there's betting odds, of course, on everything. Um, the betting odds on that, the Sixers are now rising. Mm-hmm. They're up to, last time I saw 30%. Are they their favorite? No. So Houston is actually 35% right now. Oh, jeez. So there's Houston at, last odds I saw were Houston at 35, Sixers at 30, staying in Cleveland like 20, and then the other 300%, like the other teams, I'm joking, 300%, like another 10% of any other team. I mean, Lakers were there, sorry. It went... Houston, oh, yeah, Lake, LA Houston, has to be in there. But but down at 10%. Because yeah. the belief is, look, how many great years does LeBron have left? We could say, I don't think LeBron... Yeah, I mean, most people, I think, are assuming that LeBron, um, giving his choice, is not going to kind of go into a rebuilding, rebuilding situation. Right. So who do you think is further along, the Sixers or the Lakers? And most I people think the think Sixers. The Sixers. Are much further no along. And that's yeah, why I mean, people are saying the Sixers over the Lakers. Okay, yeah. let's talk about the Houston-Philadelphia Houston's decision. much further along than both those teams, so yeah. But it's in the West. It is in the West. I, I got, I got. Look, I'm, I'm biased. But let me just say, by the way, I don't want to play that Celtic juggernaut for next year. Let me just say, if they have their squad that they had this yeah. year, mm-hmm. and obviously, I'm assuming Irving and Haywood are coming back, and let's not forget their draft picks that they have next year. Um, I'm not. So you'd rather be on Houston? No, I'd rather be on Philadelphia. I'd rather be on Philadelphia. I'd still rather be on Philadelphia. And I think yeah. you would say if the Sixers, if the LeBron chooses to go to the Sixers, you'll be sitting here on Wharton Moneyball all of next season saying, "Why are we talking about this, guys? It's going to be LeBron in the finals <laughs> again, right?" Yeah, you would no, be saying that's right, that. That's if right. he's on the Sixers, you would say he's going to yeah, be on whatever the Bron- team LeBron is on. In the I, East. I, I would. Bet for the finals. Yeah. Well, given it's only I mean, the only you team. Put, you, you put LeBron on Houston, and no, I'm, no, I'm picking them. I have a question. Wait, I want to ask this question. LeBron stays on Cleveland. You still have him in the finals over the Celtics next year? No. Mm-hmm. No. No, I don't. Okay. I mean, if if, if, if somehow the Cavaliers don't have stay the same as, basic squad, stay as currently constructed. Yeah, well, they they won't. If he were to stay, he would only yeah. stay if they brought in more people. So, yeah. are there are there people to be had in this year's free Paul agent George. market? Paul George would be the is the big free how did agent. He, how did he um, redeem himself? Or how, how did he? How, how does was his play down in Oklahoma City this year? I think it's hard to tell. You know, these dynamics between players, which is, you know, they've obviously got a strong, dominant ball alpha male there. Yeah. I think, actually, I think Paul George is a great, you know, he reminds me, I'm not saying he's as great as Scottie Pippen. I'm not trying to make that comparison. 
Scottie Pippen was a great number two man. His game was built to be a number two man. He was a great number two. I actually think Paul George is a great number two. Okay, I want him to be the yeah. second best player on my team. Okay, And I think if you put him with LeBron, it would be a perfect match. Okay, so now tell me, complimentary tell, set of skills. If you were to try to get inside LeBron's head, the guy's obviously made a few of these decisions before. He decided to leave Cleveland. He decided to come back to Cleveland. These were both big decisions. How do you think he's going to make this decision? Even say, We're probably underestimating staying in Cleveland, considering that they can move some pieces to help him out. He may. Does he want to move again? Does he not want to move again? Does yeah. he want to go to the West? Does he want to avoid the West? Does he want to play with CP3 and Harden both? Or would he rather come into an Embiid and Simmons kind of situation? I mean, I, I, my thought is no one likes being three and six in the finals, right? I mean, no. if he, assuming he loses this year, that's, I don't want to say that's a stain on his record, but three and six is not particularly good in the finals. Um, it just pales in comparison to nine. I mean, to hell with three and six. He's been in nine finals. I don't, I don't care. I mean, the man drug teams to nine finals. I, people should not say anything about three and well, six. Well, I agree. I agree. I mean, this is like the kind of like Brady versus Montana comparisons where somehow people, you know, we were like, oh, well, Joe Montana was 4 0 in Super Bowls, and Brady's only. <laughs> by yeah, the I way, mean, back when maybe know? Brady, before Brady won his fifth, and Brady was 4 0. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Like, that. Somehow 4 2 is better than 4 0. You've <laughs> been to six Super Bowls, not four. And I think we can all agree 5 and 3 is a lot better than 4 0, right? De- definitely, definitely. So, no, I mean, I think the fact that LeBron has dragged these teams to so many finals is. is okay, so in his head, how's he going to make this yeah. decision? I think he's going to maximize. I think at this point he's going to maximize the probability of winning another title. Is that right? I do. And also, I think also, a lot of people say, how can he play with Ben Simmons? Because, you know, they're both ball-dominant people. I actually think LeBron would prefer playing less on the ball, would actually love it if he had a young player who could run the offense. LeBron can focus on other areas. As a matter of fact, if you think, I mean, LeBron's playing point guard, point forward, Setup man. I mean, he's playing eight positions yeah. right now for the Cavs. I think he would be happy. He doesn't have to play rim defender. Joel Embiid's a very good defensive center. He doesn't have to bring the ball up the court. They've got shooters around him if they re-sign Redick. I'm saying they've got guys that can shoot. But wouldn't it be weird for him not to be? I mean, well, by the way, if you're if you're if you're talking about his not wanting to be with Simmons at the Sixers, imagine him not wanting to be with Harden, Harden. and CP3 both. Yeah, right. Houston, they got there you three have guys. two guys that right. I, yeah. well, that actually, argument I alone, I think that would be a bad mix of. T- I, I've, mm-hmm. I've always said this. I, this is why I want to give Golden State and Steve Kerr a lot of credit. I was concerned when Kevin Durant mm-hmm. went there. I remember we was talking about it. You did not think that he would be able to kind of somehow integrate into that offense and like share responsibility and what he basically has done is they've all they've all sacrificed a little bit of their individual statistics but what also happens is the beauty is and this is the point we've pointed out many times and this is back to Cade's point about winning the game the beauty of golden state is at the end of the game you got a proliferation of options on who to go to to win the game for you you know in cleveland the ball's going to lebron you don't know on Golden State. Let's imagine George and, Hill and, makes and, that and, free throw. How much are you? Set, how much are you going to guarantee me? Who do you think's getting the ball? It's nobody's not, more than fifty percent. R- nobody. Matter yeah. of fact, I would argue if you put Clay Thompson in there, who by the way, Clay oh, yeah. Thompson did shoot the end of the. Clay yeah. Thompson did get the ball. If you remember at the end of the Houston game, let's call it Game Six. There's three guys. I mean, you're not giving it to Draymond Green. You're not giving it to whoever the fifth guy is. Yeah. But they got three guys that are equally likely to get the ball. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But- and I mean, I, and I think it also the the kind of one of the variables that we haven't directly mentioned in in this kind of calculation by LeBron is the coaching, right? 
he wants to go to a place, presumably, where he kind of has confidence in, in the coaching aspect. And, I mean, I, I think that would probably, to the extent that he's taken that into account, that would maybe bump so down Cleveland not, a little bit. Because our- I, don't th- I, I think we, we're seeing that, you know, maybe Cleveland does not have the kind of coaching situation that a lot of these teams that he's choosing. By the way, I don't think we're going to get, I don't think it's in our over-under today, but um, so how does everyone, uh, anybody want to update their predictions? I mean, I start, I stayed, I started the series. Oh, I had to at go Golden seven, St- didn't I? Right. Yeah. I had Golden State, I had Golden <laughs> State in five. I'm going to stay with my prediction of Golden, that's what I had at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to stay I was with the, Golden State in five. What was the over-under? Y'all did this last week, I guess. Well, was, was I don't the know. There wasn't an over-under. I predicted Golden State in five. Adi predicted Golden State in six. And Shane predicted I've, Golden I predicted it going seven. I do not think it's going to go seven anymore. I so I, I would like to update. Where are you going to go? I think I'm going to knock it all the way down to like five or something like that. Yeah, I'm down to five now. I was at six. I was at six when we started at a conversation. Um, same, same, same question. This is Money Bo- Wharton Moneyball. Of course, you can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We're here every Wednesday morning. This morning it's Cade, Shane, and Eric. Open lines in this first half hour, guys. We're going to talk soccer in the next half hour so before this half hour ends i want to talk about it but i'm gonna hold it off for a second because i'm always curious tell me what's going on in baseball right now i haven't paid that much attention well so lately I, yeah so i've been paying a lot of attention to baseball two things have caught my eye in baseball one is that the yankees and the red sox i should sorry to be respectful the red sox were in first place by, the red by sox by and the yankees one, one game yeah one game. one game but and they've played more games yankees have less losses at the moment but either way they're they have a higher winning percentage they're both targeting over 110 wins right now. Oh, that's insane. Yeah. Now, they do have to play each other, which is going to help knock that down. But I, this is the over-under I was going to put to you guys. Oh, and we did this a couple weeks ago. 105 wins, both of them, yes or no? I'm going yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, 105. I I, I, no. We, I, we, no, no, I don't, don't think allow, so. I'm allowing for mean reversion. They're at 112 <laughs> you, you're and 111. Enough. You're not allowing Have we for ever enough, had I two 105-win game winning teams in the same division? I don't think 105. I think there I know there have been 100 win teams in the same division. Since they've gone Since to the scheduling thing the... where you overplay teams in your own division? That I don't know. But yeah. I know Matt can look this up. But uh, by the way, I'm going yes on 105 for both. Interesting. No, okay, I, 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 I don't think so. Over think... 100, 100. You'll take you'll go over 100. Not even that. I think they'll both be in the neighborhood of 100 by the end of the season. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, joint probabilities, Eric. I'm definitely short. I'm definitely short. You do know we're though. well over a third of the season to go. Yeah. So we could. Uh, thir- Two thirds of the season to go, right? No, I'm or sorry. Third I'm sorry. Well over a third in. of the season in. I'm sorry. Yeah, I meant yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. seasons in. Yeah. So let's put the following way. They've got. Well, here we go. They've got 100. Let's just take rough numbers. The Red Sox have 101. Yankees have 105. They have 100 games left, let's say. Can both of these teams win 63% of their games in the last 100? Yeah, definitely. They well, that can. gets them to 105. <laughs> they I'm, can. I'm, I'm, just but, for the record, Eric, I'm not saying it's impossible what you're proposing. I just do not think it's probable. It, 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 and, and by the way, and it's what, hurt by the fact they play each other like 18 more times. Well, so. right. That's part of it. It's also hurt by the fact that you're saying not only is one going to happen, both are going to happen. Yeah. Joint probabilities, as you know. Yes. Are, and, and we know psychologically. But I'm reverting they're kinda, them. They're both playing 690 ball right now. I'm going to revert them both back to the low 600s. You're making a, you're, you're an energetic case, Eric. Yeah. You think it's too strong. Now, look, the only other team that's projected to win more than, say, nine. 92 games. I mean, these guys are projected to be 100, 101. The only other team within 10 games of that almost are the Mariners. I mean, there's nobody else kind of killing it right now. But the Mariners are 
unexpected, well, right? What's, so remarkable. Very unexpected. what's remarkable about the Warriors? Take a look at the sheet that our <laughs> producer, Matt, that's put in front of us. Does anything strike you about this? They're 38 and 22, and their run differential is only 23. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, it tells you they must have a great bullpen. They must. But they must and also be winning. pretty lucky. They've gotten lucky. Because, I mean, yeah. look here. They're, they've only plus 23. I mean, here's another. What other team is roughly plus 23? The St. Louis Cardinals are 32 and 26, so like four or five games worse with basically the same rough run. Dif- the Arizona Diamondbacks essentially have the same run differential. Matter of fact, the Los Angeles Dodgers, by the way, give them a little cheer. They're back to 500. Yep. They have a plus 42 differential, and they're 30 and 30. Yeah, but I don't quite understand because the projected wins is below the pace for these good teams, as you'd expect. But the, some teams are further below the pace than others. So the Mar- Mariners, the projected wins are just a little bit off the pace. And so even though the run differential isn't very high, they're doing something that's impressive. So they might be playing a tougher schedule so far, for that, example. That could so be. Consider your By the teams, way, the Yankees, by the way, the, 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 the pace, the projected is 101 and 100. And, but the, and the, so that's 10 games off the off the pace. And so there's a, there's much more regression to the mean for those two teams than there are for the Mariners. And it's not coming from run differential, so it's coming from someplace else. It's coming from some, the other thing Probably that, it, that they play each other so often to come. Okay. That's a, the other thing that caught my eye was, right, um, right, you know, so right. Mike Trout, by the way, I, I'm not taking into account last night's game because I didn't look at it. I know they won last night, but I'm assuming he didn't have a great game. They won one to nothing. Going into last night's game, he had a uh, OPS of 1.129. Okay. Now, I started to wonder, how great is that? Okay, anybody want to guess? Really of all great. the seasons. So <laughs> real, how, no, no. Real great. I, I, all right, so I'm asking you for your number. Is it one of the top 10 seasons? If it ended now, is it one of the top 10 seasons all time? 20, 50, 100, 300? Where is an OPS of 1.129 rank order? I mean, I, I looked up a list of the yeah, OPS I, I rank order by probably, season. I, I mean, it's probably outside the top 20. 20 only because, I mean, Barry Bonds had about like eight or nine, I think, seasons like that himself. And then I, I would guess it's somewhere between top 20 and top 50. Okay. And Kate, any guess? Don't have a guess. 59th. Oh, wow. And so okay. um, you are correct. The top OPS season of all time. Just Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds, No, Barry Bonds. Babe Ruth sneaks in there. Okay. Sweet. So it, it's Barry Bonds at 1.42. In 2004. And then in 2002, he was at 1.38. Babe Ruth's greatest season, 1920. 1.42? Yep. Babe Ruth was 1.38. And then the season that, that obviously silly. interested me was Ted Williams. Of course, the season he hit 400, he had an OP... In 1941, he had an OPS of 1.29. So, but yeah, I mean, people had talked about this as one of the great seasons of all time. And I'm not saying OPS is just one measure of how good a season no, I mean, is. That's, that's but it's good. 59. Right, yeah, It yeah. shocked me about how low that was. I mean... Yeah, no, it is. 59. Compared to what you would have expected. Yeah. I was expecting a much greater. So that's that's what's caught my eye in baseball and, you know. So it's fun. It's fun. I'm glad to get a little update there. Something that's about to grab our attention that we haven't been thinking about much lately because our team isn't in it is the World Cup. This yeah. thing's kicking off soon. Are it you? is exciting. No, I'm excited. I'm actually going to be spending a good chunk of uh, the World Cup time in Europe, which is extra exciting. That, that so is. I'll be I was in 1998. Get, I think probably get wrapped up in it in a way that probably sure. most Americans won't In 1998, won't this time I was in Fontainebleau in, at a conference when Paris, when uh, France won the World Cup. Oh, my gosh. I was in Montreal, and they acted like it was the home team. So <laughs> there sure. you go. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to tell all our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball how to make money betting on this World Cup. Oh, I've come up Eric. with the, uh, with the bet oh. that can't be defeated. 
It cannot that, lose. That cannot be defeated. No. Don't make these promises. Uh, I, I, it, it can be defeated. <laughs> but here's the bet I'm going to make. I am going to make this. So if I had to ask you, don't look at our sheet, who the top three goal scorers are likely to be in the World Cup, who would you list? Messi, Ronaldo. Yep. yep. Um, think someone from Griezmann, Brazil. The, the guy from uh, uh, France, Griezmann. Yep. He's Well, he's the fourth listed from the okay. betting line. The only person who left out is Neymar oh. from Brazil. Yeah. Okay. okay that so guy. just to let you know. You, if you bet on all four of those players and any one of them win, you at least double your money, maybe more. So let me say it again. Hmm. Messi is plus 800. Neymar plus 900. Ronaldo plus 1,200. Griezmann plus 1,300. So if I bet all four of them $100 and any of them win, the minimum I can end up with is 800. I lose the other 300, of course. And so I'm up 500. I'm betting $100 on all four of those guys, and I'll but take you, my chances. But do you chances. really think that those okay. four guys Eric, cover it? I'll cover take the, the field. I'll yeah. take the field. 100 I bucks, def- me and you. I, I got mean, the field. I do think those are the four top guys, <laughs> but I, I think the field... Let me think about what the odds are. You're, you're not, it's not a bad bet. I mean, if we do, if you use 800... Look, if you do the basic math, they're saying Messi's at about 11%, 10%. Yeah, so these four guys, according to the betting odds, are around 35 to 40%. So you're, <laughs> we're not making a ridiculous bet if we mm-hmm. make that bet. Yeah, All yeah, yeah. I'm, but I'm saying it's... I, it's I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, but Eric, I think this is a classic. Money this is, is like... a classic. This is a classic. Not a classic bias because it hasn't been shown, but it's, it's a hypothesis. I feel strongly. People think that the most like they they miss they they misinterpret most likely as likely. So in these mm. settings where there are mm-hmm. many possible outcomes, yeah. like consider March Madness. Yeah, the team that's most likely to win in a big field is still not very likely, well, but psychologically it feels like it is. The thing that would prevent this from happening, which is, the, to me, the greatest source of uncertainty, is what's probably the strongest predictor of who scores the most goals, who plays the most games. So what could happen very easily is, I can't guarantee you any of these teams, I'm, I think it's likely, maybe they all go out in the uh, you know in the group round. And then, trust me, Messi's not scoring more in the first three games than someone who plays yeah. seven or eight games in the World Cup. Right. So it could well be. To me, that's the greatest form of uncertainty. But if it's you good. told me that these four teams were in the final eight, I would take that to me is the great source of uncertainty. And those four teams are sort of predicted to be well, in then the I like final my eight. But, but then, but you know, somebody's, notice I didn't shake Kate's hand, but I like my so, bet. Somebody is going to you know, play a four nil game and or a couple of four yeah. nil games in the in the in the group rounds and that some random team some guy from a random team is going to get four goals in the group round because he has some lousy opponents in some big games just by chance like suarez scores four against egypt yeah, something, or something, something like, like that exactly. why egypt, yeah. just because egypt's goalie is 45 years old he's younger he's older than you egypt's goalie is shane jensen could be the goalie for egypt oh i, I wouldn't i wouldn't recommend so that what, what without this u.s in the tournament what are you guys most going to be paying attention to. What are you most excited about going into this thing? I'm most excited about the great players. I like seeing the great players and see if they perform. And for some reason, not because we, you know, I'm always interested to see how England ends up not doing well in the tournament. So yeah, that, and, that's and, the thing and, that catches my and eye. And for me, it's Messi. I think Messi's the, probably the greatest. It, uh, it would be, I mean, not that I'm really cheering for Argentina, but there's there's a guy kind of like, you know, Alex Ovechkin in, like, in, in hockey where this is one of the all-time greats in the sport. Yeah. And he hasn't kind of he's had a lot of kind of club based success, but he hasn't had a lot of national success. Okay, give so I'm me, interested in that. Give me a team to pull for, other than you guys named a couple of. I, I, Iceland, I agree, man. but they were a little bit Iceland. obvious. England and Argentina, a little bit obvious. Iceland, 
less obvious. Tell us. Yeah, that. well, Iceland has it like four hundred thousand people in it, or something like that. I mean, Iceland has less people than I think Center City, Philadelphia. So they, and, oh, for sure, and. They're the, there. The, the, They're country, the country has less people than yeah. Center City, Philadelphia, yeah. and yet they have a team. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you a... Hold, I'll real give quickly, hold on. And, and they, they made a run during the last European they, Championships. And don't they have some kind of interesting chant that happens in the stadium? Oh, they do, I think. We'll I, have to I'll recover have to what this up. Is. Yeah, okay. we'll have to get on it. But yeah, Iceland's my and, team. And the team, I'm actually now I'm looking which group they're in. I'm, I'm rooting for Denmark because I have Danish relatives, and I think they can get out of the group of France, Australia, Peru, and Denmark. Why you're, can't they, they get can't, out of that? You're, group? Just, they you're disparaging Australia. Yes, I am. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, fellas. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. This morning, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow hosting. Our buddy Audie Weiner is away today. He'll be back in a couple of weeks. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 7866 Email us, businessradio at com, or add us on Twitter at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. Great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. We take a suggestions for our over-under segment, over under segment we close the show with here in a little bit. Dion, any luck with that skull, skull chant? We talked about the Iceland chant. To get you in the mood for our next segment, which is World Cup and soccer related, we haven't heard these guys in a couple of years. What This is what the Iceland fans sound like. That is pretty amazing. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of that, that Maori uh, thing that the uh, New Zealand rugby That's guys right. do. That's right. It has that yeah. flavor from the opposite end of the world. It has yeah. some of that flavor. How can you not pull for that team? That's why, that's that's my team. Between man. that and they're doing it at a much lower per capita rate than anybody else <laughs> in the, right, in that's the right. world. The, no, the noise per person's off the charts <laughs> per, per resident. So to help us understand soccer, because we always need a deeper understanding, and to get ready for the World Cup, we have... Omar Chowdhury. Omar is the head of football intelligence, and that's soccer for you American fans. When they say football in, the, in Great Britain, they mean soccer, of course. Head of football intelligence at 21st Club. 21st Club is a business that helps soccer teams win by thinking differently. By the way, they also have an affiliate, which I think is called 15th Club or something, that um, is about helping golf golfers, golf-affiliated people be smarter. This is a very interesting outfit. We've had him on the show before. We're glad to have Omar. Good morning, Omar. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Omar, where are you calling in from today? Uh, calling in from London. I'll be uh, one of the few people, I guess, not supporting Iceland at the, <laughs> the World Cup. I may not see being knocked out by them, uh, England in, in Euro 2016. So, uh, yeah, but we're calling from London today. Well, you know, we we were just talking in the end of the, the last segment about what you know, storylines we were following this year without it, without the U.S. in there. What storylines have our attention? And Eric, first thing he brings up is we're always interested in what happens to England and what tragic way <laughs> are they going to carry themselves in this World Cup? Do you do you does, does the whole country are they kind of like hunkering down right now in, in anticipation? There's definitely lower expectations than there has been before. Um, I think probably for the last two tournaments, there's just a kind of acceptance that uh, we're 
probably not going to win it. Um, if we can make the quarterfinals, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's just a general kind of much more realistic viewpoint. But then it so often changes after the first game. You know, if, if England play well, suddenly your hopes get up. So, right. Yeah, right now expectations are low, but it may well change. What what players are on the England side that you guys are, are, are most um, invested in or are, are most important this this tournament? Well, I mean, centre-forwards are pretty, like, high-quality young centre-forwards are pretty rare in, in world football at the moment, and Harry Kane's probably one of the best, if not the best, certainly un, under the age of, of 25, 26. Um, and, you know, if, if you're going to win the World Cup, you're going to probably have someone who's among the leading golden boot scorers. So Harry Kane's a, a pretty obvious candidate there okay. um, for England. And, and he's um, he's playing alongside Deli Ali, who he plays uh, with, with his club Spurs. Um, so... Often in, in international football, it's quite useful to leverage uh, the club relationships that you have. So Spain historically have had a lot of players playing for Real Madrid, Barcelona and, and Germany for Bayern Munich. So right. England can hopefully leverage some of that, that Spurs relationship there. I guess there is. I mean, you never quite know how it's going to come together, right? I mean, and there are you can always come up with some reason for optimism. When you've had guys playing all over with top teams like that, there is kind of how are they going to play together when they when they're a team? And I feel like another reason for optimism on England's behalf this time around. I mean, because I feel like and maybe my memory just isn't serving me well, but England's often has found themselves in kind of the group of death, like their their group stage. Groups, at least the last few World Cups, have seemed to be pretty tough. Whereas this time around, that's certainly not the case, right? I mean, England's in with Tunisia, Panama, and Belgium, so they should—they certainly would be favored to come out of the group stage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the FIFA have changed the way they've done the World Cup draws, which means that the, the groups are pretty. There is no group of death this year, which which definitely falls um, to England's advantage because, as you say, in the last World Cup, we had. Uh, Uruguay, Italy, and, and Costa Rica, and ended up being Costa Rica, the team that was, uh, and Uruguay went through from that group. So yeah, it definitely helps. Um, you know, as an England fan, you're always nervous. You know, a few years ago we drew nil-nil with Algeria. Uh, obviously, lost to Iceland at the at the Euros. So you know, no no game's an easy game, I guess, in international football. So Omar, this is Eric Brad. I want to ask you a question. You had said you would consider it a good year if maybe if England makes the quarterfinal. So I just want to do a little, since this is also an analytics show. Um, mm-hmm. Is the following math wrong to think about it? Um, how much uncertain? Let's just say there's an eighty or ninety percent chance they get out of. I guess it's Group G, as Shane yeah. said, they should get out of this group. Belgium and England should get out of this group. Let's say it's an eighty or ninety percent chance. Then to make the quarterfinals, they only have to win one more game. And so, yeah. d- isn't there like a one third, forty percent chance that they're going to make the quarterfinals, or is that just bad math? Because I'm just saying it's point eight or point nine times. You know, there's roughly a fifty percent chance they win their next game. Well, half of point eight or point nine is forty, forty five percent. So if we were calling you in a couple weeks from now, aren't we sitting here saying, "Huh, they have a," you know, it's not, it's not like it's one in a hundred. It's about forty, forty five percent. Is that about right? Yeah, exactly. So actually, our our models got England exactly forty six percent to reach the quarterfinals. Yeah, you're you're back in back of the envelope. Uh, maths is, is bang on there. Um, yeah, I mean they've also been paired with with a pretty one of the slightly weaker groups in the tournament. So whoever goes out of uh, comes out of England, the Belgians group will play uh, one of Colombia, Senegal, Poland, and Japan. Um, none of whom are among the favourites. Maybe Colombia, you know, we've got them at about 5% chance of, of winning the tournament. Um, so, yeah, you, you're right. It is kind of, I guess, your, your kind of median estimate is England to reach the uh, the quarterfinals. The, the problem England have had is, is winning knockout games, um, certainly in the last decade, if not longer. 
Um, I honestly can't. I think the last time we won a knockout game in a major international tournament was 2006. Oh, my gosh. Um, so while we're talking about a relatively small sample of games here, we're talking what, about, I don't know, six, ten games here, um, it's still it's still not, not, the, not the type of record that fills you with optimism. Yeah, I would right. actually say, I'm just looking at, you know, as someone that doesn't know, but I can see the odds sitting in front of me, <laughs> they may have, you know, Group H, which, as you said, is the Poland, Senegal, Colombia, Japan. That may be the weakest of the groups. I'm saying if England, you know, if England comes out of there and they play one of those teams, wouldn't they be favored? Uh, yeah, they'd, be, they'd probably be slight favorites. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we've got them 79%. To come out of the group and forty six percent to reach the quarterfinals. So if you do the math on that, that's slightly better than fifty fifty in the in the round of sixteen. Okay, um, you hear, so. you heard it here. Omar Chowdhury says England's making the finals of the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, on, <laughs> on to the next topic. On to the next topic. I'm actually kind of intrigued. You, you mentioned these models that you're creating to kind of predict the 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 the, the results of the World Cup. How and we're kind of I, I think mentioning sort of two sources of of. of Uncertainty or two variables that are very important to those to those probabilities. One is kind of, you know, how the teams are structured in the current World Cup. What 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 groups are kind of weak versus not versus kind of the recent history. You pointed to England's got a very poor recent history, at least in knockout games. How much uh, how much are the, those kind of weighted relative to each other in your models? So, so the latter is not really weighted at all um, because if you look at international football you're talking about tournaments every two or four years apart the players are completely different you know the coaches are completely different um and really you're talking about a really small sample size of, of games you know a world cup a, ma- a maximum number of games a team will play is, is seven if you look at seven games into any sports league season it's not going to really resemble what the final uh, league table looks like um so you can kind of rule that out the table and and, and try and look at some of the factors around Firstly, how the team has been performing, uh, which, again, you're dealing with a relatively small sample because international teams only play about kind of 10 to 15 um, games a year. Uh, but also, obviously, the quality of players that they have um, in their squad at that time. And you can, you can gauge that off, off the club performance that they're going on. Well, that's um, a, let just, me just build on Shane's question and Omar, your answer, which is, you know, in some sense, like we've always talked about this, like the regular season in the NBA or whatever. It's just not predictive because, you know, no one cares that much. So how often, just for a soccer, I watch a lot of soccer, but I don't know the sport as well. The England team that's going to be playing, is it starting next week? Starting next week. How often yeah. do they play together? I don't mean five of the 11 or 20 guys. How often does this team play together? And given that, is it is this a, a really hard sport to make predictions on? Because the guys just don't play together that much. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard sport to make predictions on full stop because it's so low scoring. So you, you end up having, you know, the upsets always possible. But but as you say, that the players themselves hardly play together. So they'll have international breaks um, for two weeks at a time in September, October, November, uh, March, and in June. So you're talking about maximum kind of, what, 10 weeks, uh, six to 10 weeks over the course of a year together, which, which really isn't that much, particularly when it's, when it's broken up like that. Um, so around, it's very difficult to gauge you know, how players are going to gel together. And that's why the coach is so important because he's going to have to communicate ideas in a very short period of time um, to the players. Uh, and that's why what I mentioned earlier around having those club relationships as well can help because it just kind of helps bring the team together a little bit more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Omar Chattery. Omar is the head of football intelligence at 21st Club, organization out of London who does analytics both on soccer and, and golf. And 
And they're not just another analytic shop. I want to hear a little bit more from you, Omar, and why we're listening to you guys. Why Why are you – we think of you as not just another analytic shop. I know you're working at the highest levels of sport in both golf and soccer. We, I can tell immediately, Omar, we're going to need more time with you. Like, we could be an hour-long segment because instantly we're – all of a sudden we're talking about World Cup for the first time in four years. And I can tell you, even though we're – Americans, we could do this for the next hour, and it'd be fun to do it with you. We're going to run out of time. Tell us why Twenty First Club is kind of at the frontier of soccer analytics. What are you doing differently than the average shop? Yeah, well, very kind words. I mean, the what we primarily work with strategic decision makers at football clubs. So that's your owners, chief execs, sporting directors at, at clubs. So, we, as a business, we really try and get involved in the mid to long term strategic decision making. You guys will know that, you know, sports is very much game to game, week to week, and you kind of get caught up in these narratives during the course of the season. Uh, and that can lead to really kind of troubled decision making because you're reacting to a certain result that might not be indicative of how well you played. Uh, and that can go either way, either you're overreacting or underreacting. So, so we try and take a bit more of a long term view on things um, and try and help help clubs take that almost helicopter perspective on things. And we use data to do that. Um, so we, we're really trying to answer the big questions. Um, so some of the big questions in in soccer, for example, is obviously we have lots of different leagues in lots of different countries that have vastly different levels of quality. You know, you've got leagues like the Premier League and La Liga, which are you know, really high standard leagues, but then you've got leagues in, say, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, or Eastern Europe that aren't as high quality. Mm-hmm. So trying to assess the relative level of quality in those leagues and therefore how players might perform in one league when they're moving from another league, is kind of those big macro questions that right. we try and help mm-hmm. um, clubs answer, rather than going, "Well, this is where this is the type of football you should be playing on Saturday in order to, to beat Man United." Omar, how much of that is the like on-field analytics versus prudent use of funds? Because the bidding for these guys seems to be an extraordinary element to to, to player acquisition. Yeah, and and it's a hugely inefficient area. Um, you know, the, the prices, a lot of people talk about how the, the price of players have gone up and up and up. In truth, it's gone up with revenue. Clubs aren't really spending more uh, as a proportion of their income than they have before. Okay. Um, but, but you're right, the, the, the sums are large and, and it is a big source of inefficiency. You know, we see teams in, for example, in, in Spain who are mid-table in La Liga in the top division in Spain who have the same budget as teams towards the bottom of the second division in England. Right. Um, so so there's, there's a massive gulf in how clubs are using their funds. Uh, and a big part of using data is to try and help clubs allocate their resources more efficiently because you know, a lot of clubs are operating on budgets of 20 million or less, which isn't, you know, in the grand scheme of things, isn't massive. So you've got you to be able to use that wisely. So you had a, there was a piece in The Ringer, great, great media coverage in The Ringer a couple of months ago that that talked about how you guys advocate, you know, worrying a little bit less when your players get bought away. If you're a, a mid-table team, as you just described in Spain, and someone pays what they pay these days for talent, you might not worry about it because you're, you're, I think you're arguing that they're they're paying more than they're worth, that they're overvaluing the contribution of any one player. After all, there are 22 guys on the field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you're spot on. I mean, as you say, so if you take a, a top um, Premier League team, they might win around 90 points, and a team at the bottom of the Premier League might win around, say, 35 points in a season. So that's a 55-point gap um, between the, the top and bottom teams. Uh, and you're talking about 11 players, you know, for, for a team. So on average, you know, a player from the top 
uh, Premier League team will be worth around five points more than a player from, from a bottom Premier League team. Uh, but actually, replacement-level players at a top Premier League team are actually a lot better than players at a bottom Premier League team. Um, so, you know, a good example this season was Liverpool losing Philippe Coutinho, who a lot of people said, you know, was going to be a pretty pretty big loss for Liverpool. And actually, a couple of days, uh, they had an interesting sequence of results after Coutinho went. They went and beat Man City, who obviously probably one of the best teams uh, ever seen in England. And then the following week, uh, they went and lost to Swansea. And a lot of people said, oh, you know, Coutinho wasn't needed for those big games, but for those really kind of dogged, tough games against bottom of the league teams, you need a player like that. But actually, Liverpool kicked on and, and reached the Champions League final. And, right. And, and Coutinho's loss is kind of mirrored with lots of other clubs that have lost players over the years. And I've been fine, really. Um, you've just got to accept when a big offer comes in and look to reinvest that. Right. Monthly. Right. So what, what level of inefficiencies are there? And, and flipping it around, what are the edges to be gained by being a smart team, a, a, a team that you know works with you guys or follows some of the same philosophy? And let me put a, 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 an example on the table. The fantasy for the analyst is that you could come in, you could buy like a second league team, and by deploying all the latest and greatest thinking, you'd have enough edges that you might get promoted, and, and that'd be a great way to get returns on what it costs to buy those second league teams. Is that is that pure fantasy, or are the edges actually that big if you're willing to play them long enough? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think um, you know the, the example I gave on mid-table Spanish clubs against you know second division English clubs. That's that's kind of the bigger gaps that you're talking about in terms of inefficiency. So you know you could run a mid-table Premier League team on close to a second division budget, um, and that's through primarily player trading. Um, that's that's clearly the biggest inefficiency. You know players. Will make are obviously the key driving force behind the results that you have, um, and I think a lot of clubs what they end up doing is following trends and shopping in the same markets. There are players playing all over Europe, all over the world, but clubs tend to end up just picking on um, particular markets and they all tend to follow each other. Mm. Um, so there's a world of players out there who are very good and a lot cheaper, um, and I think a lot of clubs don't realise that. So, so as you know, as an analyst looking at the at the game, that's certainly the first starting point. So, to be looking at. Yeah, so Omar, this is Eric Bradlow again. Um, I always say when you have an advantage in analytics, it comes from typically one of three sources. And this is what I'm trying to understand. Does it come from you have better data? Does it come from you have better mathematical models? Or do you just have better ability to convince teams to follow this? It come, it's got to come from one of the three. So how could everybody not notice if there was an undervalued player at some team? Because they're all looking at the same data. So where does the advantage come from? Uh, so it's not it's not really in the data. Um, so football clubs have had um, access to data now for nigh on 20 years. Um, companies like Prozone and Opta have been collecting data for a long period of time. Um, and slowly clubs have become more and more sophisticated in the way that they use that data. So initially they're just be looking at distance run and counting the number of tackles or passes. But more and more you're understanding you know, the, the probabilities around shots, the probabilities around passes and using more a sophisticated level of analysis. Um, but but on the, the kind of three points that you made, the, the last two are clearly the key ones. So on the mathematical modeling, I, I mentioned earlier around trying to equate performance across leagues. You need good mathematical models to be able to understand that. You need to be able to understand what a goal in the Netherlands is worth in England. You need to be able to tackle that in quite a sensible and robust way. Um, so that's step number one. Uh, step number two is, is, as you say, convincing 
convincing people that this is a, a smarter way of doing things. Right. And while, while it seems seems intelligent to us, you know, a lot of people go into football, a lot of ownership uh, groups go into football because you know being in football is quite it's quite sexy, it's quite a, you know cool industry to be a part of, and so you aren't necessarily that fussed around what the numbers say you know if you see a guy who plays well at the world cup and you like his style then maybe you'll just go out and spend right. that money on him totally. uh, and that's that's a perennial perennial cultural challenge in, in football omar we're down to just a couple of minutes i want to come back to the world cup give us a couple of things to pay attention to especially us poor americans without a national team in the tournament for example <laughs> what's an exciting club just in terms of style of play or flashy mm-hmm. players that might that we might not be knowing about and what is who is a dark horse who you think might have a fighting chance at winning the whole thing? So, so the World Cup's interesting because there's normally quite a defensive tournament. I think teams are often pretty scared about messing up, and so you end up getting quite, yep. quite kind of cagey games. One of the teams that might buck that trend is is Belgium. Um, so Belgium are coach, coached by Roberto Martinez, who played pretty attractive football at Wigan and Everton. Okay, uh, and they've got you know some of the best attacking talent in the world: De Bruyne, Hazard, um, Lukaku. Um, so they'll be certainly one of the um, one of Great. the teams to watch. Great. Um, and in terms of uh, in terms of dark horse, uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my neck out here and say England. I think oh. uh, having <laughs> having kind of played down the optimism earlier, I do think we have a good team. I think you know once you get to the quarterfinals, you never know. So I love it. Let's see. I love it. Omar, that's great. Much appreciated. Look, way too short a segment. We need to hear from you again. It's probably a busy time of year for you, but this is going to go on for a few weeks. We'd love to have you back here before the tournament's over to tell us how things are going. Love to be back. Thank you. All right. That was Omar Chowdhury. Omar is the head of football intelligence at 21st Club, organization out of London that helps soccer clubs around the world make better decisions about their people and be more competitive. We've had them on here before. We've also talked to them about their golf analytics. They, they work with the World Cup. The, they work with the Ryder Cup captain in England on golf. That is one half of our show. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. For those of you that listened to the first hour of our show, uh, this is not Cade Massey. Kate had to step away for the rest of the show. He had to run out and make some bets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we knew which ones he's going to bet on. But, uh, of course, that's why there's four of us. So some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, who's here with me, and, of course, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Um, we're actually thrilled to have our next guest, one of our colleagues, Aton Green. Um, Aton is an assistant professor of operations, information, and decisions here at the Wharton School. His research focuses on judgment and decision making among experts, which is actually an interesting twist because I, you know, we have a lot. I'm a marketing professor, and we have a lot of people that do judgment decision making, but usually it's among less expert populations. Um, and of course, if you want to join the conversation, and we're going to have lots of questions for Aton, but you can ask Aton questions as well. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So, Aton, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, uh, first, uh, could you just tell us um, about your background? That's the first part. Like, what got you here to the Wharton School? What was your undergraduate degree in? What was your PhD in? And what did you study in those? 
Yeah, so I've had a kind of a winding path. I was a, a, a major in urban studies, actually, at, at Brown University. So wow. it's a little bit odd. I didn't realize that I wanted to do a PhD in social science thereafter. Um, ended up at Stanford for my graduate work and kind of cycled around doing a lot of CS and eventually some economics, got involved in a behavioral economics crowd, um, and got this job eventually. So I'm here. Well, that sounds sounds interesting. And certainly, I think you would agree that, um, well, first, could you tell our fans, I think some of our fans have an idea of what economists do. Could you use the word behavioral economists? What does that mean to you? And how do people think of behavioral economists? I mean, is it people that kind of look at deviations from normative behavior? Like, you know, a rational economic agent would do X if we make some set of assumptions, and we can use math and say, this is what the prediction is. And a behavioral economist says, well, sometimes people don't behave according to these rational economic models? Or do I have it wrong? Yeah, no, I think that's about correct. You know, one thing that's super interesting about behavioral economics is that whereas most fields are defined by the question, so you're a labor economist if you're interested in any question about, you know, wages or employment, uh, you're a behavioral economist and if you find evidence uh, that people behave in ways that contradict standard models. And so it's a, it's a little bit odd, and the fact that most behavioral economists are defined by the outcome, by the result of their inquiry, rather than the question. Do you think that your whole field has been, not that it wasn't legitimized, but it, that it's been more legitimized by, obviously, Kahneman and Tversky winning the Nobel Prize, and, of course, just recently, Dick Thaler? Um, do you think that that's kind of... Um, you know, I don't want to say that behavioral economics hasn't been a legitimate field for 30 or 40 years, but we know there's always a pushback from the traditional economists. Um, have, do you think that the Nobel Prize winning work that's coming out of people that, you know, you must, well, Tversky, I don't think any of us knew him personally because he's been dead for a long time. But do you think the Nobel Prize winning work of recent people in behavioral economics has kind of increased the cachet or excitement around the field? Yeah, I mean, it certainly impacted me. So I, I named my son after Amos Tversky in part. So his his name is Amos. Ah. Uh, but more generally, um, yes, uh, of course, if you win multiple Nobel Prizes, and you can even include people like Robert Schiller in the mix, it's it's certainly legitimized the enterprise. Um, one interesting thing, you know, when, when Thaler and a bunch of his peers uh, sort of started the whole behavioral economics movement, there was a push uh, to publish in mainstream economics journals, to not have their own behavioral economics uh, journals, to, to basically make economics behavioral rather than create sort of a, a subfield. Um, and, and, and it's not clear how much progress has been made in that regard. There have definitely been a lot of papers published in top, top economics journals that are behavioral in nature, but there also has been the creation of this subfield as well, which I think Thaler would talk about as sort of a necessary intermediate step towards economics overall becoming more behavioral. So one of the papers that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes is about your work with umpires, and you had mentioned to me, we, had, we were just talking, can you get tenure, can you succeed as an academic by doing what Wharton Moneyball is about, which is really the interface, if you'd like, between statistics and sports or statistics and business types of problems. Um, and you mentioned that the paper is going to appear in Econometrica. How important... Well, I should say it's under R&R Econometrica. So. Okay. Well, it's it's made... Well, as we know, at Econometrica, that's 90% mm -hmm. of the game. Um, how important is it for you to have this work kind of get this seal of approval of the, I would say, you know, top flight economists? Because Econometrica is not messing around. They're not just saying, oh, you know, we like Aton or, wow, baseball's kind of interesting. Let's just publish this paper. That's not, that's not how it's going to work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's supremely important. I, I got a lot of advice in my early career not to do sports. Um, but I think there have been a couple of things that have, have turned that. So the, the data in sports is just sufficiently rich that you can ask and answer questions that you 
can't in many other data sets. And I think this this umpire's paper that we'll talk about it is is a good example of that. Um, and so I think it, it's turning. Nobody's interested um, in sports analytics per se, and I'm not interested in sports a- analytics per se as, as a research avenue. I, I am just as a hobby. Um, but the, the opportunity to ask economic questions, questions about judgment, decision-making, about expert behavior that just happen to be in a sports context, I think is allowed for by the richness of the data. So I'm definitely going to dive into that when you talk about umpires, I'm going to say, if we re- replace the word umpire with, you know, an experienced manager, what would the, you know, in some sense, how does your work translate to something more generalized? Well, I'll definitely want to dive into that. Well, maybe let's, let's not skirt around it. So could you tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball what you've done uh, with work on umpires? And, you know, uh, it, there are a lot of people that would say, I don't even know why we still have umpires. Why don't we just have a machine tell us whether they're balls and strikes? I'd but be one of those people saying I, that. You, well, you, not, you would be saying it. You've said it many times yeah. here on Wharton Moneyball. But could you tell us about the work on umpires? Let's just start with what was the hypothesis or what was the theory you were trying to test? Yeah, so I mean, well, let's just start off. It's a it's a very simple setting. You know, pitcher throws a pitch, batter chooses not to swing. Uh, the umpire is a simple directive. If the pitch is inside this box, they're supposed to call a strike. Otherwise, they're supposed to call a ball. And so there's incredibly rich data that you can use to simply evaluate how good our umpire is at abiding by that directive. And one of the things that you'll find is that, well, they're not good in a particular way. So the strike zone that they actually enforce varies dramatically with the count. So 3-0 count, three balls and zero strikes, count that favors the batter. You have a huge strike sense. It pitches that you would think of as close. They're almost always strikes. 0-2, you have a really small strike zone. So pitches that are close are almost always balls in that And then just, so, just to interrupt for one second, since I'm an effect size kind of guy, how big an effect are we talking about? Are we talking about two inches, six inches? I mean, it's not like a foot. It's not like they're calling a ball that's a foot outside, that's right. no, even no, no, at 3 no. So It's a couple of inches is what we're talking about in terms of an effect. Yeah, so basically there's a band that's about six to eight inches wide around the boundary of the official strike zone, a little bit wider, but coincident at the top and the bottom. Uh, that basically goes from the 10% um, ring to the 90% ring, a 10% chance of a strike to a 90% chance of a strike. So it's really in that band that we see all the movement between counts. I see. And do you also look also, before we get back to what your theory was and what you were testing, do you guys look at are some umpires better at, let's call it, false positive versus false negatives? Well, so basically all umpires do the behavior that I described, expanding the strike zone when the count favors the batter and contracting it when it favors the pitcher to more or less the same degree. And can umpires be, this is the classic thing when someone notices a, let's call it some sort of behavioral, I don't call it anomaly, but behavioral pattern, can umpires be trained out of it? Well, the argument is that they're kind of trained into this. Ah, so tell what what is the argument there? Well, so so let me just start with yeah. what I think you naturally expect when you see these data, which is what I expected when I saw them initially five years ago, and that is they're biased. They're clearly revealing an aversion to making, say, the more pivotal call. Mm-hmm. So you give an umpire a choice between calling a fourth ball and a first strike. If they're kind of unsure, maybe they'll you know err on the side of calling a strike of. Extending, the extending essentially extending the at-bat. Yeah, so I was convinced by that explanation initially. In fact, I wrote that paper. It was my job market paper. I'm here because I presented that paper, and people hired me based on that that uh, argument. In fact, other people made that argument well, as well uh, coterminously. Um, but it's wrong. At least I think so now. So, okay, so what's, yeah, what's your updated theory? Okay, so imagine that you're an umpire. You're crouched behind the catcher. The pitcher throws a pitch 95 miles an hour. It comes in close. You have to say whether it's inside a box that you can't see. So it's a pretty difficult thing to do. But let's make it even harder. Let's imagine that you blink right when the pitch comes. 
So you have no idea where it was. What do you do? So maybe you flip a coin in your head. If it comes up heads, you call ball. If it comes up tails, you call strike. But you could probably do a lot better than this. In fact, you can do better if you make the call that you expect. So if you expect the pitch to have been thrown inside the strike zone when the batter chooses not to swing, that is when you have to make a call, then you should call a strike. Otherwise, you should call a ball. Just so I, just for our listeners out there, I kind of know the title of your paper. But and is, is that sorry? Go oh, ahead. Shane. I was just going to clarify: is that expectation based entirely on the count, or is that what it is that ba- expectation it, it based should, on? It should be based on any number of factors that change your expectations. Um, but a big one is the count, as I'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, the point I was just going to bring up is since we're you're, you're, you cannot be in a room with two people that are more Bayesian than the yeah. two of us here, and so uh, as statisticians. So just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, if you want to join the conversation, we're here with Assistant Professor Aton Green from our Operations Information and Decisions Department. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So just the simple application of Bayes' rule, if you'd like, for our listeners, you have a prior belief, prior expectation. In this case, let's say I'll use your example, Aton, you blink. So I now have no data. There's no likelihood to update. So therefore, the rational thing to do is just to use the prior. In other words, there's nothing to update. Is that the premise that, just for what you've told me so far, is that the premise I should be thinking of in my head? Yeah, exactly. If you have no information to go on, you should go on your expectations or your prior beliefs. Okay. Um, Okay, so imagine the situation in which you observe the pitch, so you don't blink, but your vision is imperfect and the pitch is fast and this box is unseen, and so your information is noisy in some sense. You don't have a perfect sense of exactly where that pitch crossed. Uh, the region on you know on which the official strike zone is defined, and so what should you do? You should be a Bayesian, which is to say that you should combine your prior expectations about where that pitch was likely to have been thrown with your noisy observation of what you actually saw. You should basically average those two together according to Bayes' rule, just this simple statistical uh, rule. And so, now, just a quick question, yeah. since um, I'm going to get a little I, I don't say technical for our fans here, but you know the magic question when people combine a prior belief. And an observation is how much weight to put on the prior. So as you know, all let's say, even at 3-0, and 0, I have an 80% belief that it's going to be a strike. Okay, well, in some sense, is it 8 out of 10, 80 out of 100? So how do you think about how much weight to put on the prior belief versus the noisy observation that comes in on the pitch? Yeah, I mean, it's a function of how much noise is in that observation. Um, but so I, uh, what, what we do is we basically write down a model – uh, in which we imbue these umpires with prior beliefs that are rational. So we can't observe the beliefs that they have in their head, but we can say, what if they had perfectly rational beliefs? That is, what if their beliefs about where the pitch was likely to be thrown, conditional on the batter choosing not to swing, is coincident with the distribution of pitches? So yeah. That's my question. Yeah. That was my question. So you're assuming, I just want to make sure we're assuming everything. We're assuming, I don't want, it's not without being overly technical here, that there's one distribution of pitches for which the umpire forms a prior. In other words, there aren't And all umpires have the same prior. That's that's what I was going to ask, too. Right. So basically, if you build a model in which you just imbue them with what I'll call a rational expectations prior that is not specific to the count, so it's just the unconditional distribution of pitches when the batter chooses not to swing, that doesn't buy you anything. That doesn't explain this behavior of the... Yeah, so let me just jump in here for our listeners. Yep. So, because we're getting a little technical, but not really. We're saying this in English, which I think makes sense. What Aton is saying is, let's us make, let's assume we make an assumption, which he's proven is not true, that umpires just use the 
overall distribution, like forget the count, what's how likely is this pitch to be a strike? It just doesn't explain the data. So you have a hypothesis. In this case, it's refuted by the data, which is that things aren't conditional on the count or that in some sense it's not even condi- – that umpires have maybe the same distribution. And you've refuted that because the data doesn't support it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So maybe it's worth backing up here and just explaining the intuition. Yeah, so, please. So what is the intuition behind being Bayesian and how does that generate this change in the strikes and the umpires enforce with the count? Okay, so imagine that we're in a count that favors the batter, so three balls and zero strikes. So what should the umpire rationally expect in this count? Well, what's the pitcher going to do? The pitcher is going to try to groove one, knowing that the batter is not going to swing. And so if you're the umpire and you're unsure where the pitch is thrown, you should lean on your expectations about where that pitch was likely to be thrown, given that the batter chose not to swing, which is probably right in the middle of the strike zone. Now, if you think about the reverse situation, zero balls and two strikes, so a count that favors the pitcher... Uh, so what is the pitcher trying to do in this count? Well, the pitcher is probably trying to get the Paint batter the to edge, chase. Yeah. That's, yeah. Or, or, even, or I mean, throw it outside the strike zone and yeah. make the guy swing in a bad pitch. That's right. That's right. If in the case that he throws it in the middle of the strike zone, well, the batter is clearly going to swing. And so when you just think in your head about that distribution of pitch locations when the batter chooses not to swing in 0-2, all the mass is basically on the outside. There's no mass in the middle because the batter is swinging at all those pitches, and besides, the pitcher is not even trying to throw there. Uh, and so, so when you think about, you know, the umpire being unsure about where a pitch was in O2, if he sees that the pitch is close, he should probably think twice to himself and wonder, was it really there, given my expectations that the pitcher was trying to throw it outside and that the batter would swing at anything All right, close. so I have a whole series of questions, but I, and I don't know if you've looked at this, but let me just throw out some questions. That if this were a job talk, here were questions I would ask you. Great. So, uh, number one. Is it possible that there could be auxiliary measures? You just mentioned maybe the umpire thinks twice. Well, we kind of know in, in marketing, let's imagine I had latency measures. So how long does the umpire take to actually make the call? That could be an observa- That could be a proxy for he's thinking about this more deeply. Has anyone ever looked at the time it takes to make a call and says, maybe this is some evidence that the umpire's integrating information or he or she, he's near the boundary? Yeah, I mean, so no, because those data don't exist. So there aren't there are data that show the timestamp of each pitch, but we don't have data on how long it took from the catcher catching the balls of the umpire. But the conceptually, call. what I'm saying is not the dumbest thing in the world. If one had latency information, one could try to use that to try to understand the mental process of the umpire. Perhaps. My argument as to what the umpires are doing is that they're not explicitly Bayesian. Like, they are not calculating Bayes' rule in their head. None of us are. Yeah. But they've developed some kind of intuitive heuristic that approximates this process. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do umpires realize it's a long game? They've got a lot of pitches to call. And in some sense, you know, all right, so, you know, if I blow the 3-0 call with nobody on base and two outs, you know what? Eh, not that big a deal. I know I only have a finite amount of brain power and attention as an umpire, and I'm going to focus my efforts when it really matters. So you could look, do pitches in high leverage situations, do they tend to get called more accurately than pitches in lower leverage situations? Or do we know anything about that? That certainly we could look at. Yeah, I think accuracy is a 
tough thing to go on because it, there are deviations uh, between the strike zone the umpires enforce regardless of the count and the official strike zone. And so it, it's not clear that they're trying to maximize accuracy as defined by the official strike zone. It seems like they have a box that's slightly slightly different in their head. But one thing that you can do is you can basically say, you know, does the strike zone that umpires enforce, say, in a 3-0 count, change with different factors that impact the leverage, like whether there's a man on first base? The answer is no. If you look at the enforced strike zone in 0-2 with, you know, zero outs or one out versus 0-2 with two outs, so here you have a higher leverage situation, strike three ends, not just the at-bat, but the inning, uh, no change in the strikes and the umpires enforce. So what seems to be consistent is it's the count that's driving this behavior and not other factors that impact the leverage. Hmm. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and, and our colleague Aton Green. We're here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you have a question about, for Aton about umpiring or any of his research, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, so... <clears throat> You mentioned earlier that basically all umpires are the same in the sense that they all have this kind of like deviation depending on the count. Like they really kind of change their strike zone depending on the count. I've at least read elsewhere that there is also differences between umpires just in terms of the strike zone that they actually enforce. That's true. Um, and is that consequential enough? Like if you were to fit a more com- complicated model where you say, for example, an umpire had their own prior expectations that were different from the other, that weren't shared by the other umpires would it be you know i guess more would it fit the data even better or would it not really be consequential yeah i don't know i mean so so it's hard what we could do is you could try to estimate uh, umpire specific expectations by yeah. just looking at the pitches that they've seen uh, the problem is you actually run out of data so you know, this is a circumstance in which you'd think that you have as much data as you could possibly want. There are millions of pitches and millions of calls made over the observation window that we're looking at. But you slice it by the 70 or so umpires that you see, and it just becomes very difficult to form these count-specific expectations. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I should mention is that these deviations between or across umpires and the strike zone that they enforce are just swamped by the size of the deviations uh, between counts. Right. Okay. So yeah. l- let me just j- illustrate yeah, this. Give us an this. idea of yeah. how big an effect yeah. we're talking about and how, as you're pointing out, like O2 versus 3O, that might be, I'm making it up, on a, that might be a 6-inch, 8-inch difference on this ring around the strike zone. But, you know, the difference between umpires is really like a half an inch or an inch. So what's the relative effect size as yeah, we're talking so, about? Okay, so the, the strike zone that umpires enforce in 3O is 58% larger than what they enforce in O2. It's 58%. And if you imagine a pitch... Do you mean by area? I by, mean by area. By area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're basically just drawing a boundary that effectively separates locations where they call strikes on average from locations where they call balls on average. And those two boundaries are different. One is 58% larger in 3.0 than, than And should And should our listeners be thinking it's a symmetric top, bottom, left, right? Or is that, I hate to say it this way, that's like you could fit a more complicated model then, but it would be a second or third order effect. So um, it's it's a little asymmetric. So it basically coincides with the top and bottom of the official strike zone in 0-0. Zero, zero. So in 0-0 zero, zero in the baseline count, they're basically at the top and bottom. It's not rectangular. It's uh, kind of an, a weird ellipse. Um, and it depends on the handedness of the batter. So uh, basically, for both right and left-handed batters, they're calling outside pitches strikes more often than they're calling inside pitches. Uh, but it's more egregious for left-handed batters for reasons that I, I can't explain. I think it has to do with how they how the umpire sets up behind the catcher. I was going to ask you that. What's the role of the umpire's positioning and his ability to, you know, 
yeah. see where the pitch is actually going. Yeah, I believe that that uh, positioning is asymmetric, and this is from a, a minor league umpire I talk with, um, but that's as much information as I have. Oh. Um, but just one more point yeah. about how big the, the disparity is. So imagine a pitch right at the top of the official strike zone, right in the middle. So this is right at the letters, uh, right in the middle of the chest, um, and right in the middle of home plate. So 0-0 zero, zero count, first pitch of the at-bat. It's basically a 50-50 call. Umpire flips a coin in his head. Um, 3-0, it's almost always a strike. And 0-2, it's almost always a ball. So we're going from a coin flip to deterministic in either direction. Hmm. Wow. So yeah. let me ask you a related question. Um Let's imagine we had infinitely rational pitchers. Could you start to study whether pitchers know this? And therefore, you know, let's take the next implication of yeah. this, which is, all right, so let's, I mean, I know as a behavioral economist you study this, like how many steps ahead could would the pitcher have to be thinking to be able to take this information into account? Do we have any evidence that pitchers kind of know this? Well, so this is the part that really blew my mind. So... Uh, I'm not sure how much game theory the, the our audience wants to get into, but the, the high-level summary is that this behavior is not only individually rational on the part of umpires, but is rational in the sense that it is... Yeah, tell us in what sense it's rational. It is the best response in a game in which pitchers and batters are also acting strategically with correct beliefs about what the umpire is going to do. But what's the objective function that they're trying to maximize here? Like, if the umpire is rational, like, I understand what it means to be rational if I'm trying to maximize profits. I understand what is the objective? Like, what's the ra- – the, the umpire is trying to do the best job to maximize what? Accuracy? Like, yeah, some sense of okay. accuracy. Exactly. I see. I see. Okay. And so can you tell us um, – I'm very interested, and I'm sure our listeners would be too. Where have you present? I mean, I know you said you've. this is an academic paper, but, like – have you gone to Major League Baseball and presented this? Have you presented this to teams? What's been the reaction? Like, is everyone embracing you and saying, Aton, we knew this. Thank you for telling us this. Or has the reaction been, not another egghead person from academia presenting some paper? Like, who's your audience for this work? Outside of, of course, academia. Because if it's published in Ac- Econometrica, lots of people are interested. Yeah, big if at this point. Um, but- I said if, I, but let's <laughs> let's put away the academic audience for yep. a second. Who else do you think would be interested in this work? Right. So I, I presented a version of this years ago at the MIT uh, Sloan Sports Conference. Yeah, which we talk about quite often on our show here. Right. And so that was really just about the effect without trying to piece apart what the interpretation is. Um, and, you know, back then, this was like 2000. Uh, 14, I want to say, something like that. Um, you know, there was a big disparity in terms of analytic uh, awareness on the part of baseball clubs. So there were some clubs who came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, we know this and we're trying to sort of figure out how we can use it, but we have this big problem whereby, you know, our managers really just don't have any appetite for analytics. And then there were other teams that were like, whoa, you know, this is this is nuts. So we never even thought to look at the the umpire. I mean, from a baseball perspective, like if you're if you're the pitcher or the batter and you're thinking about how to take advantage of, uh, you know, uh, what the umpire may be doing differently in different counts, um, that that priority has got to be like, I don't know, at least seventh on your priority list. You have so many other things that you're thinking about beforehand. And these people have limited brain space um, just because they're human. Right. So I, I think it's it's sort of hard to expect that that audience would try to consume this in a way that would, would help their team on the field. 
Um, you know, I think more generally, a lot of people are interested in how people with a lot of experience, experts in particular, make decisions. Uh, big movement in behavioral economics says there are all these biases out here. We have a case of, you know, highly experienced, highly selective uh, individuals, experts who are doing things more or less by the rational model in a pretty impressive way. So no, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great substrate for sort of exploring some of these kind of behavioral economics because you do. I, I think it's rare that you have situations in, in, in life where you kind of have a lot of data coming in on something that is at least you can talk about the correct outcome. Oh, you know, the correct nuts. outcome is actually defined you know, in a, in a very tangible way. Yeah, it's nuts. Where, where else does somebody make hundreds of decisions per day and yeah. they don't know what the correct outcome is, yet we as the observer know exactly right. what they yeah. should have done. Yeah. So let me ask a question. How do you turn this in our last like five or so minutes here? How do you turn this into a research stream or career? Because as you know, when you come up for tenure, it's not just as Aton have a lot of papers, but Aton's an expert in X. And so how do you turn this paper that you're working on to a huge research stream? Is it that you now have assembled an interesting data set and there's lots of things you could look at with this data set? Or are you interested, are you going to broaden out into sports? Are you going to go deep with this data? Or are you going to kind of broaden out and you'll be known as the behavioral economist that does work with sports? No, I hope not. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in baseball. I find it to be kind of boring. Maybe I shouldn't admit that on this show. No, it's I, all right. Uh, it's all right. It's the all data right. are if Kate was still here, he'd be nodding. I think. It, uh, yeah. yeah, I I try I try to watch. I can't even watch it at the gym. Um, so how do you write a paper on a topic and immerse yourself? And you seem let me just say, just from our my cursory discussion with you for the last twenty five minutes, you seem to have learned a fair amount about the sport. Are you not a huge well, baseball I, fan? No, I, I was a fan growing up. Oh, okay. I, I feel like the baseball's become boring as it's become distilled into what are they called, the essential outcomes, you know, walk, home run, strikeout. Yeah, um, I've been kinda of talking about this a little bit too. I'm kinda of, I mean I I don't baseball is still very interesting to me, but I, I kind of agree, like as as we've kind of gotten to more of these sort of like lart like Either strikeout or home run. I mean, a big part of what makes baseball interesting to me is the suspense that builds up as you slowly accumulate, um, you know, chance to score runs, and that's all about men on base and and et cetera, et cetera. And we and we've kind of gone. A, the sport has gone away from this concept of men on base. Essentially, it's well, either strikeout or home run. Well, I could allow you to ask another question, but we have a caller. Okay. Uh, so, Matt, Matt from Florida, uh, you're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Of course, we have our guest today, Aton Green. So you have a question for Aton. Yes, thank you very much for taking the call. Um, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm infatuated by, by the uh, discussion. And I'm a big sports fan, but I'm also, um, I, I, you know, I love every part of business, especially decision-making and how to reach the customer. And I, I look at business in a large sense as, the customer is the umpire. They're the ones that are going to decide your fate. So it's very difficult when you look at data to take to make um, one profile one profile decision as a whole. How do you um, how, how do you normalize out the preconceived notions of the umpire versus the reputation of the pitcher versus the reputation of the hitter and all the rest of the variables? And what does that skew the results overall? Well, first of all, Matt, thank you for your call. That's it's a great question. Like, how do you take away all these other factors? So how how do you do it? Yeah, uh, uh, admittedly by ignoring them. So it should be the case that if you have a batter who is particularly discerning, has a much better eye, then the beliefs that the umpire should have are, are probably very different, right? Um, but there's just not enough data, as I mentioned before, to basically imbue the umpire with beliefs that are specific to the pitcher or specific 
to the batter. If you have Greg Maddox on the mound, you know, he's much better at painting the corners, and that should tell you that a close pitch, well, maybe it's closer to being a strike than you would otherwise uh, think, you know, given the count. Um, another interesting uh, extension is thinking about, well, why did the batter not swing? So the the implication or the assumption in this model is the batter is not swinging because they're thinking this pitch is not that close to being a strike. Um, but imagine that you have a Roldis Chapman on the mound and he throws a 110-mile-an-hour pitch and the batter just can't get the bat off of his shoulders. And so if you're an umpire and you see, you know, pitch right down the middle in 0-2 and the batter didn't swing, well, the batter didn't swing probably because he couldn't catch up to that pitch, not because he thought it was a ball. Right. And so you should probably have different prior beliefs uh, about, you know, about where that pitch is likely to be thrown. Could you tell us maybe in the last minute or two we have, um, what's the next project you're working on that might be sports-related? What would be something else that our listeners, like, you know, and when we have you back in a month, two months back on the show, what will you be telling us that you're working on or have completed? Yeah, I'm not going to give away too much information, but I'm looking at the favorite long shot bias in horse racing markets. So not sure how many people are familiar with this. Could you just say what the bias is? Yeah, so basically you go to the track, and there are horses with long odds, long shots, and there are horses with short odds, favorites. Uh, Mike, we may be having a race coming up this Saturday, as an example, that might have a favorite, like the horse Justify that won the first two legs of the Triple Crown, and there's certainly some long shots in the race at the Belmont. Yep, that's right. And so it it turns out that if you bet on a a favorite. You bet a buck on a favorite, you get back about 85 cents on average. If you bet a buck on a long shot, say 30 to 1, you get about 55 cents back on average. So that that's weird. Those are out of balance. Why would people bet on long shots when they can make more money betting on favorites? And so there have basically been two explanations that have been offered. The first is that, well, you know, people are risk averse in most walks of life, but when they walk into the track, suddenly they become super risk loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's one explanation. The other is this explanation from prospect theory from behavioral economics, originally from Kahneman and Tversky, uh, that people overweight small probabilities. So we don't really have a way of conceiving of a 1% chance, and so we kind of round it up to 3 um, Yeah, then I'll, all of a sudden, that long shot doesn't see, that seems like a good bet. Yeah. yeah. What I'll say is I think both those explanations are wrong. Well, this will definitely have to have you back when this research has uh, either seen the light of day or more public because we actually, um, it's an interesting, uh, that first of all, it's an interesting, another interesting way to test, as you're saying, alternative explanations. If you could have that all wrapped up by the next Kentucky Derby, that would be very convenient <laughs> that, for us. That, that would be, it's a deal. Yeah. That would be great. Well, Aton, thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. My pleasure. So this has been uh, the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half hour to go, which, as everyone know, includes our over-under segment where... Shane and I are hoping to bat at least over 500 on that over and under segment. Unlikely. Unlikely. But please join us again right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. We just had our colleague Aton Green, Assistant Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions here on Wharton Moneyball, talking to us about his umpire research. And we, of course, had Omar Chowdhury talking to us about soccer analytics uh, in the 8.30 to 9 o'clock hour. And this is Eric Bradlow again. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. If you want to join this conversation, just like Matt from Florida did, it's very easy to do. Just call 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 And our producer, Matt Datz, will put you right through. And of course, as always, thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for keeping us alive in the last half hour of the show with always exciting music. So, Shane, before we get to the over-under segment where you and I make bad predictions about what's going to happen uh, going forward. Um, there is, as all of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball know, I'm obviously a huge tennis fan, one of my favorite sports, actually, to pay attention to. Um, and so I want to start with the, the, a fact that 
you know, Serena Williams made yeah. it to the round of 16. Yeah, how had, bummed out are you that she uh, had to withdraw? I was pretty bummed out. By the way, just for our fans that are listening and may not may be driving in their cars, may not be in front of the TV, um, Sharapova, who benefited from yeah. that uh, default Withdrawal, by Serena, yeah. um, was just beaten 6-2-6-1 by Gabrina Muguruza um, today, this morning. And so now Sharapova's out. Um, I was pretty bummed out about it, but I think what it... What I was thinking more realistically is, what does this tell us about sports? The biggest, probably un- one big form of uncertainty, and I'd be interested in your thought about whether it's the biggest, is injury. Mm-hmm. So if you had told me, if they play this match, who's and, and they're both healthy, who's going to win? Well, Serena's 19-2 and two against Sharapova, and she's won 19 in a row. So she's probably not going to lose that match if at full strength. But first of all, she just came back from having a child. There were complications from that. And how about 36-year-olds? I don't know about you, but when I was 36, longer time, much longer ago for me than you, like, I could just be, I mean, I understand I'm not a world-class athlete, but I could just be running by myself and pull a muscle and all of a sudden something happens. I mean, oh, yeah. injuries happen, and they happen more to older players. So why do you think we don't bring those as much into our statistical predictions as we should? Oh, I, I think it's entirely uh, driven by the fact that it's just, I think, a very hard prediction problem. I, I, I think, and I think this is where, you know, this is where I kind of see a lot of potential advances over the next decade is i mean even as you sort of have you as you've tracked Wharton Moneyball our show i think increasingly when we first started out it was all about like you know we were having people on talking almost entirely about you know player kind of performance evaluating players in game managing and whatever sport we've had so many people doing physiology or training on in the last couple of years that's exploding and i think it's basically going that this marriage of essentially medicine and sports is is I think a huge research area over the next like ten years, and most of the kind of driving force for that is is injury prevention, I actually, or at least injury prediction. Yeah, I actually think I agree with you. Um, just for a little, I don't know, it's not really self promotion here. Um, next week I'm going to be in New York on Friday at a Wharton's having a forum in New York City, and I'm actually very fortunate. I'm going to be moderating a panel with David Blitzer, who's co-owner of the Sixers and the Devils, and the other person on the panel is Justin Tuck. The two-time Super Bowl champion. And I was talking to him last night to prepare him, if you'd like, for the panel. And I asked him, what do you think, what was the role of analytics during your career? And he said exactly what you said. He said, Eric, look, we didn't use it that much in football on the field, except we knew the tendencies of the other teams. He said the biggest thing that changed in his 10 years in the NFL was the use of it for injury prevention for training. He said yeah. they, even during practices, they'd have us wired up with all kinds of biometric devices, and it would be about using diet and training properly and how it would affect various metrics along as they were training. So he was he agreed yeah, with no, you 100%. And, 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 I mean, it does vary from sport to sport, I think. It's, 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 it's influenced, but I mean, baseball, obviously, you know, I mean, you know, if, you're, if you're predicting, you know, how Chris Sale's going to do this season. It's entire, you know, the the major variance in that prediction is just whether or not he is able to pitch the entire season. For any starting pitcher, that's the case. And well, remember, remember the the formula that we talked here a couple weeks ago on Wharton Moneyball that Adi Weiner pointed out. The number of anything is sample size times rate. Yeah. If you're injured, the sample size goes down. Yeah. And most people do not. Matter of fact, they could even be correlated, which is when the sample size goes down, the rate typically yeah, no, goes and, down. And, and, and I mean, it, it's sort of you know, it, it, it it's it's I guess a, a probability that we have a hard time kind of 
putting a number on as far as like a particular pitcher getting injured in a season. Why is or a particular let me ask golfer. a question? Why do you think that's hard? Because let me give an example. One of the things when I worked with the Philadelphia Eagles and with Howie Roseman, etc., was we were building injury models, yeah. which was for a player at a given position. What's the likelihood he would get injured based on, you know, if you like, the wear, you know, various metrics one could compute on the yeah. wear and tear of the body? Why is injury? Is it just that, well, as I mean, we I talked mean, you, about, is there just so much inherent uncertainty in it that even if you could have whatever observables you want, it's just going to, you know, it's R squared explanatory power. It's just going to be low by the nature of what it is. I mean, it sounds like you've done more explicit actual modeling of, of, explicit of injury. Modeling. Than I have, so you could probably speak to that question more than I do. I mean, I I I've, I have not worked a lot directly predicting the injuries, but my kind of hypothesis is that there is just a lot of inherent uncertainty there. Yeah, but so let me ask you a question. So I, I I would be curious how much, to what extent you can predict any you know in a particular po- sport a, a particular player's probability of getting injured in a season as a function of their previous injury history. Plus, you know their you know their position, what they actually do in terms of on-field performance. The answer is it's not. I mean, it, it's not as horrible as you would think. It's not. Yeah. Let's be clear for those people that follow R square. Like, how much of the variance are you explaining? It's nowhere near half. It's nowhere near thirty percent. It's in the fifteen to twenty percent range. Right. So it's it's a reasonable coin flip, but not a great coin flip. Let's put it that and way. I, and I would assume you know that I mean the task maybe gets like somebody that already has a large injury history that then becomes I think easier to predict subsequent injuries for those particular players. Players without an injury history, kind of predicting that first injury that's, must be that much, that's that much great, more difficult of that's, an exercise. That's absolutely a great point. But I would think if I were a general manager and I were using analytics for player evaluation and contract design, oh, yeah. I don't know how this wouldn't be oh, a no, massive I, I mean, part hon- of it. Honestly, you know, if uh, every team should have like one analyst devoted entirely to injury prediction. Right, I mean, because basically you make one good prediction or something like you've paid your salary, right? right? I mean, like how much money do teams lose due to injuries? It's but unbelievable. I think another issue is that, and it's something it relates to what Omar talked about, which is some some sense call it wins above replacement, which yeah. is at some point you're probably going to need the replacement. Yeah, and so it gets to a model. We've actually we've talked about this many times on Wharton Moneyball. It goes against having let's call it five stars, and let's take baseball. Five stars and 20 bad players. Well, one of those stars is likely to get injured at some point. You're going to replace them with a weaker player. So this might make an argument for, while variance is good, we like variance, at some point you have to think injuries can play a role, and you might want to think about investing in, I don't want to call it mediocrity, but having more people near the middle at least allows you to... Or having like a more full bench in basketball. I mean, obviously that's one of the main... uh, I mean... There's a myriad of reasons why Golden State's a fantastic team, but having a very you know long bench is is one of them. Well, one of the things I point out is the people that don't get enough credit. I don't remember Matt will type on my screen to let me know. I forget which game it was. I think it was the it had almost had to be the last game. But like Livingston off the bench was I think five for five. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another guy off the bench. I don't remember. If, oh, it was Javal McGee or something like that? He was like four for four. Like I'm not sure their bench missed a shot. You know, we always yeah. like to give the credit to Curry in this. Well. There was I know there was a stretch of five minutes in the game where Curry and Durant were out of the game. Yeah. Team did fine. Yeah, and, and I mean that must be extra sort of uh frustrating, frustrating for an opponent that you'd like, oh well, at least what we can do is maybe like knock these guys out of the game or like, you know, build up a score. Or... 
And, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like having an amazing bullpen. You know, I mean, you know, if you've got, if you're, if your team facing an amazing starting pitcher, all you have to do is, well, you know, maybe we're not getting on base, but at least we're working up the count. We're getting this guy out of the base, out of, out of the game. And then it's just followed up by three or four more excellent pitchers. And let me say something else that was caught my eye in sports was interesting about tennis. Let's just stay on tennis for a moment. And I know we're going to have an over under having to do with Nadal and what he might do and everything else there. Normally, if I asked you, at least over the last 10 years, which one has been more easy to predict, the winner in a major, the winner of men versus the winner of women's events? Which one's been more predictable? Like, in terms of, like, if I pick three or four players, am I likely to get it more right for the men or the women? Well, just because of Serena's dominance, I would assume it's easier for the women. It's actually easier for the men. Oh. Well, just could remember, if you pick Nadal, Djokovic, Federer... When you said dominant, right. If, I just if, meant if you, if pick, you can three pick three or four, three or four not four? one, but okay. if you pick three or four. All right, well, yeah, yeah. Well, when you look at this year's French Open, so, um, do you, I mean, you don't, I don't know how much you follow tennis, but... Do you know who the guy that beat Djokovic is, Ciccinelli or whatever he is? No, no not particularly. Do you even know the guy Nadal's playing? Th- I do because I follow tons. Diego Schwartzman? That name sounds vaguely familiar. All right, but... so vaguely, yeah. vaguely familiar. But, yeah. but I'm saying if you look at the women left in the draw, at least as of today, they one of them's now lost, but you had Simona Halep, yeah. she's the number one player in the world, Angelique Kerber, she's won two Wimbledons, Karina Muguruza, Karina Muguruza, another yeah. champion, Maria Sharapova. Yeah. And the other side of the draw, we have Sloan Stevens and Madison Keys. Yeah. So if you look at the final six women that are in, and it'll be four after today, after these other two matches are played, to me, these were all like the favorites going into the tournament. I understand they might So it's have, kind of gone by the num- by the pain or whatever. More so it? for the women than it has for the men. Yeah. And I, I just found that when, when people say, well, caught my eye on sports, this, you know, well, I kind of know it's going to be Nadal, it's going to be this, it's going to be that, it's going to be Nadal. And then after that, I'm yeah. not sure we know who it's going to be. No, that's right. Though, again, it is going to be Nadal at the end, right? I don't know how it can't be. Yeah. I don't know how it can't be. And we'll we'll definitely talk about it in our next segment, which, as we know, is one of our favorite segments here on Wharton Moneyball. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. So as people know, I kind of introduced this segment to Wharton Moneyball, but since I'm sitting in the host chair for the last hour of today, um, I think I'll throw it over to you, yeah, Shane, to lead uh, us through let's, Over let's, Under. Let's stay with Nadal. Okay, so the first Over Under, it's going to be a tennis Over Under. The over-under, 2.5 on Nadal's dropped sets for the rest of the series. Okay. So just for our listeners out there, <laughs> just to make sure everyone's clear, uh, in men's in tennis, men's tennis, you play best three of five. Um, he's in the quarterfinals still. He's got to play Diego Schwartzman. Um, then he has to play the winner, if he wins that match. He plays the winner of uh, uh, Juan uh, Marin Del Patro. And Marin Cilic, which, by the way, are the three and five seeds. So that's not going to be any pushover. And then he's going to play potentially Dominic Thiem, who most people would say is the second greatest clay court player on the planet right now. So he's got three matches to go yeah. to, to not have two and a half. I'm actually going to go over. I'm going over. By the way, let me just say why our producer, Matt Datz, gave me the stink eye for saying over. I'm pretty sure, Nadal, you can give me the exact number. I'm pretty sure he's won 37 consecutive sets on clay or something like that at the French <laughs> so Open. Like He hasn't lost a set. Forget yeah. losing a match. He hasn't lost a set in some so very you're kinda, lo- Yeah, you're going away from I'm going from against the grain, yeah. but I think, I think, well, I don't really think about this again. Hold on. Let me recalibrate. He's not losing a set to Diego Schwartzman. So... 
Uh, and then against uh, one, two, uh, I'm going under. Okay. He's going under. I'm going under. He's which, lose. which by definition means you also are predicting I'm him right to win the French, French Open. I'm right on the French, though. I am predict uh, By definition, yeah. yep, he has to win the French Open if he doesn't lose. I mean, he has yeah. to win the yeah. French Open. I'm predicting him to win the French, and I'm predicting him to go under two and a half. How about you? Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I I have less information to go on. Other, I, I would just go with his recent history. And that's the, By the 30, way, uh, thanks, Matt. I was set, exactly right. It was exactly right. He's won 37, 37 consecutive sets, sets in Roland Garros. That he suddenly would uh, decide to drop three over the next, like, you know, you know, however many 15 sets he has to play. Yeah, I don't think not, I don't not think happening. So. By the way, let me just say. By the way, it's not on our over under list for today. But let me just say, how many more French Opens is this guy going to win? I mean, he's thirty two. He just turned thirty two. I think two days ago. Yeah. Um, like he's so far greater. Uncle, like, can he win five more French Opens? Why not? Right? Why not? Well, it, it, it speaks to our previous discussion topic. The key variable in that is injury, right? Right. And remember, he was injured last yep. year. He was yeah, out no, for I mean, he's a full been year. slowed by injury in previous times in his career. And so if something like that pops up, and as he gets older, those things are going to be more likely to pop up and more likely to keep him out for longer periods of time. You know, so that would argue against well, him necessarily winning five more. But look at what Federer's done. Well, in, I was going to say so. This so. isn't part of the over under, and then I'll let you move on uh-huh. to the next one. But just right now, who's going to win more majors in their career in your mind? Federer, who's sitting at twenty, or Nadal, who's sitting at sixteen. Who in your mind do you think wins more majors in their career? And just to remind you, I think Federer's turning 37, or he might already be 37, and Nadal just turned 32. So let's say he's a four-and-a-half to five-year minimum age difference. I think Nadal will end up with, like, one more, just because of the French Open, just because he seems to essentially be an automatic win on that one. Um, It'll be interesting if Nadal does end up at, like, one more, who we kind of consider— the actual greatest tennis player of all time. Well, like the uh, fact that like it's so Nadal's portfolio is so skewed. focused on clay. Yeah, it'll yeah, be an interesting of course, question. Yeah, I'll just give you mine. Uh, I agree with you. I think Nadal will end up with more unless, as we've just previously talked about, injuries were to slow yeah. him down. That would slow him down. But otherwise, I don't. I I think he will win more because he's going to get to seventeen, so he's three behind. And by the way, I, Federer must be sitting here thinking to himself. Thank God I came back healthy, and I've won three majors. Remember, Federer was on 17. Yeah. If Federer hadn't won any more majors, remember, Federer had a four-and-a-half-year gap with no yeah. majors. If he hadn't won these last three that he's won, Nadal would be tying Federer yeah. with the win of the French this year. I agree with you. I think Nadal goes, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think Federer will win more majors? I think Federer could maybe eke out another one. Or what? You know what? I mean, that's a whole other. No, let's that's say a whole other over under. We can just create on the spot, right? I know, but, but let's I mean, say I... he gets. Well, uh, I'll do the following. Yeah, Federer's at twenty. Nadal's at sixteen. If I tell you right now, Federer gets to twenty-two. Are you taking Nadal in the over? Oh, over Federer? No, I, I think Nadal is. I, I would. I think Nadal's top end is about like tw- like you know another five French Opens or something like that, or maybe four and like one other one. So I think Nadal, I would predict at like twenty one or as so. a maximum, given he's if he's healthy and everything yeah, else. Yeah, and, and so if Federer wins another couple, then I think this he is why it's such a knife edge because yeah. you could imagine Federer. This is why over under so wonderful. Yeah. You could imagine Federer winning one or two more. You could imagine Nadal winning four or five more, possibly yeah. more than that. But that's why it's right on that knife edge right now. By the way, just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, Nadal has a 23-15 and 15 career record against Federer. Nadal, 23 yeah. wins. Federer, 15 wins. Just 
just if we're going to bring data into this, yeah. um, who would I consider greater? I think Nadal was greater in the matchup against Federer. And by the mm-hmm. way, Federer won the last four. Nadal was 23-11 and 11 against yeah. Federer. Federer's won the last four. Wow. All right. So, okay. So, moving on from tennis, uh, right. let's, uh, let's uh, engage a previous uh, discussion because we had an amazing uh, guest, Aton Green, talking about it. So, here's one. In baseball, over under 3.5 years until we have an automatic strike zone. The robots are taking all our jobs. Yes. So 3.5 years until the umpires are uh, doing something else with their lives. Oh, over. 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 I yeah. think that's probably yeah. right. Yeah, I, I think, look, you talked about, it Remind me of the word you used about baseball. What What's it becoming? You used some word during the segment with Aton Green. Oh, like, not predictable, but it's almost like, all right, so now we're not even going to have humans making mistakes on the field. We're not going to have the, you know, the Earl Weaver type arguments anymore. And uh, no, I, I, I think it's got to be over. I, I just, I think it would de- dehumanize the game. Yeah. I, I, I think it's got to be over. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll probably be less about, like, whether or not it actually takes yes. excitement away. I think it'll be more of a union thing that, like... Oh, you really think have, so? Yeah. I was thinking it would be more about, you know, that's that was the question I was going to ask yeah. you. I would think it would be more about, um, what let, let's do a survey of fans, and, you know, what would it do to TV ratings? What would it do to in-ballpark experience? I thought it would be all about yeah. the fans and have nothing to do with the actual accuracy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I mean, I, I mean either, either way, I'm taking the over, I think, as well. All right. All right, so... And one thing that one sport that we haven't really engaged today, um, and we should have more, is is hockey because you know with the Stanley Cup Finals are 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 going strong, and uh, the Washington Capitals are up three one on the Vegas Golden Knights. The Vegas Golden Knights magic appears to have run out, but you know they could always in, momentum, as you would say, can change a lot in in, in uh, hockey. So over under uh, six point five games. In the Stanley Cup Finals. Well, 6.5. I've got to go under yeah. 6.5, given it's 3-1. and one. And if I've got it correct, uh, who had home ice here? The Vegas Knights? Yeah, the Vegas yep. Knights did. So the next game's in Las Vegas. Yep. I'm still going under. If yep. you said 5.5, then I probably would go over. I yeah. think the Vegas Knights kind of... will probably win game 5, but I yeah. think they'll... Between 5 and 6 is probably right. But by the way, you've always talked about the magic of Game 7, but the magic of Game 7 in hockey in it's the finals yeah. would be, I I would be riveted to my TV. And uh-huh. let's be clear, I could care less whether the Golden Knights or the Capitals win the Stanley Cup, but man, a Game 7 in hockey would be remarkably yeah. exciting. But I don't think we're getting one this year, so we I'm going under. We probably aren't, but I, yeah, I, I, it, would, it would be pretty amazing. And overtime in Game 7 would be extra amazing. Well, that would but, be even extra amazing, yeah. but I'm going under. Any yeah. under we have? We have about two minutes left. Any last over-unders for you? Uh, well, let's go back to NBA. Um, uh, over-under, th- 37.5 points by LeBron tonight. Thirty-seven and a half. Wow. Um, I'm going to go under that number okay. um, because I think what will happen is at home, I think LeBron is Bayesian. And here's what I mean by that. You brought this up earlier in the show. LeBron is rational. Mm-hmm. He knows that his guys can't make shots, but I think his guys will make more shots at home, and then LeBron will therefore trust his guys more. Once right. they start making shots, he'll start passing more. Yeah. So I like LeBron. Which is, I think, as you sort of said, is his more comfortable role, is actually as a kind of a, a, a Look, playmaker. he would love it to have 25 points and 20 assists yeah. than 35 points and 5 assists. 
He just would. Yeah. He would rather generate 50, 60 points that way. So I'm going under 37.5 because I think the role players will play better and LeBron will give them more shots. How about you? Um, I'm going to go over because I think... Um, over, okay. I think LeBron at this point is just, you know, he... I think his psychology, whether it's rational or not, is that, you know, he's basically got to win this this thing himself. And I think he's going to try and emulate game one where he scores like 50 points and they actually don't mess it up at the end. Well, we will see. Well, that's been Wharton Moneyball uh, here. And so this has been Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Thanks also to our other co-host, Cade Massey, who was here for the first hour of the show. Um, as always, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, and our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Um, I can't even imagine what to tell you to focus on and watch over the next couple of weeks. Cause, and for my view, we got tennis. We certainly have hockey. We've got basketball. We've got World Cup. Lots to do. Watch them all. Watch them all between now and next week. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.